Welcome to the first of my New York episodes. I just want to mention, if any of you are feeling generous and care to support the podcast financially, that you can go to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash countermelody, where you too can make a contribution, either monthly or yearly, in support of the podcast. I'm so grateful to those of you who have already come on board with that. There will be more interesting material available exclusively to my supporters as the new year unfolds. So please bear that in mind. And to those of you who already support the podcast, my eternal gratitude. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world out there. Thank you for joining me on that path. And now, this week's episode. From whence cometh song? From the tear far away, from the hound giving tongue, from the quarry's weak cry. From whence love? From the dirt in the street, from the bolt stuck in its groove, from the curve at my feet. While I was up in the air last Friday, flying from Berlin to New York, the great American composer Ned Roram died at the age of 99. It just so happens that I had featured him on the episode that I had published just a few hours earlier in a setting of a Theodore Rethke poem that formed a portion of his Songs of Love and the Rain, and which featured one of last week's birthday celebrants, Beverly Wolfe. This week, I am devoting entirely to the song output of Ned Roram, for while he did win the Pulitzer Prize for his orchestral piece, Air Music, it is, I submit to you, for his songs that he will be best remembered and celebrated. What we just heard was another Theodore Rethke setting, the poem From Whence Cometh Song, which forms the opening movement of his song cycle, The Nantucket Songs, which he composed in 1982 for the soprano Phyllis Brynjolfsson, whom we just heard. It was rare that Roram would set the same poem twice, but in fact, that same poem was used as the opening number of his mammoth piece of vocal chamber music, Evidence of Things Not Seen, which was premiered in 1999, and which was set 
for four solo voices. In this case, the singers that took part in the first performance and its subsequent recording, Monique MacDonald, Dolores Ziegler, Rufus Müller, and Kurt Ullman. In this song, they are accompanied by Michael Barrett, one of the two founders of the New York Festival of Song, which, alongside the Library of Congress, commissioned this piece. From whence cometh song? From the tear far away, from the hound giving tongue, from the quarries we cry. From whence Many of you listening to this, many of my friends, many of my colleagues, knew him and knew him well. I will not presume to tell any stories about him because I have really none to tell. I was aware of Ned Roem's existence from very early on in my life. I believe my first actual encounter with his writing was a review of the Boulez recording of Pelleas, called Pierre and Pelleas, and he was not terribly complimentary of it, and this, what I took as a dismissal, struck me as extremely impertinent for an 11-year-old, right? I only met Ned Roram once. It was after a concert produced by my friend Gilda Lyons. Her husband and Roram's Pupil and friend, Darren Hagen, introduced me to the great man. When I met him, he was surrounded by, let us say, an entourage. I barely was able to get over, shake his hand, and say hello. I retreated, feeling greatly intimidated at being in the presence of such a renowned figure. So today, I have a program of Ned Roram's art songs. I'm focusing exclusively on his art songs today, though he did write a total of 10 operas and a great deal of orchestral music. But I've assembled a wonderful assortment of singers, both those singers who worked closely with Ned Roram and those who would sprinkle a few of his songs throughout their recitals. We're going to cover the entire extent of his composing career, and I think I've managed to put together a set list that will reveal the enormity of his contribution, particularly to that rarefied genre of the art song. Last week, we heard a brief excerpt from Roram's 1962 cycle for mezzo-soprano and piano, Poems of Love and the Rain. The 1962 cycle has sometimes been referred to as a palindromic song cycle, in that there are two settings of each song set as mirror images of each other. Last week, we heard the second of Roram's settings of Rethke's The Apparition, 
Today, we shall hear the first one. This is from a 1969 recording, once again with Beverly Wolf and Ned Roram at the piano. in Poems of Love in the Rain is another Rethke poem called Interlude, set for unaccompanied voice at the very center of the piece, from which all the other poetic settings fan out in opposite directions. The great Jan Degatani, a marvelous mezzo-soprano and teacher who focused primarily on more avant-garde music, for her very last recording, Songs of America, included this palindromic song, Interlude. This was released in 1988, the year before her untimely death. And here she is lending her supreme artistry to the service of a composer whose work she did not frequently perform. The element of air was out of hand. The rush of wind ripped off the tenderness and flung them in confusion. Chaos 
On the season four preview episode, I featured one song from a rare Liederabend recording made in the year 1961 by, as I referred to her at the time, everyone's favorite soprano, Martina Arroyo. Accompanied by the pianist Donald Nold, she sings two songs by Ned Roram on that recording. I'm going to play his Robert Louis Stevenson setting entitled Requiem. American icon Leontine Price also would occasionally include the songs of Ned Roram on her concerts. Apart, of course, from Samuel Barber, the contemporary American composer with whom Leontine was most closely associated was not Roram, but rather Lee Hoiby. But she also would occasionally sing a Roram setting that was particularly suited to her voice, whether that be Ferry Me Across the Water or this one, The Silver Swan, a setting of an Orlando Gibbons text which she performed live from the White House, accompanied by her pianist David Garvey, in the fall of 1978.
I do also want to note that Ned Roram's most significant piano teacher in the early days of his studies was the African-American pianist and composer Margaret Bonds. This is a connection that was not so often remarked upon in the obituaries that appeared last week, but he himself always cited her as having been a very important musical influence. Another extraordinary woman who was of such monumental importance in the life of Ned Roram was the Vicomtesse de Noailles, born in 1902, the child of a German-Jewish banker of Quaker descent, who had an extraordinary lineage, and who married the Vicomte de Noailles in 1923. She subsequently became an extraordinary patroness of the arts influencing and underwriting basically any artist who was anybody in the interwar years in Paris and beyond. In a 2007 interview for The New Yorker with the writer Francine Duplessis-Gray, Ned Roram described the support that she provided to him in the 1950s. For five years, I had two meals a day at her table. Five years, she lodged me, fed me, gave me spending money, and during those years I was able to compose dozens of hours of playable music. I mentioned that alongside his musical compositions, Roram was also equally celebrated, perhaps, and certainly more notorious for his published diaries and essays. In one of his journals, published as the Paris Diary, Roram wrote of her, Marie-Laure is first of all a child, second an artist, third a vicomtesse, fourth she's a saint, fifth a masochist, and sixth a bitch. Above all, she is generous, not to mention crazy. Roram set texts almost exclusively in English, but during those Paris years he did write a few songs in French including a cycle called Poème pour la Paix, and this 
a setting by Marie-Laure herself of a poem called Jack l'Eventreur, Jack the Ripper. It's performed here by the American soprano, my friend and colleague Laura Aiken, accompanied by the American pianist Donald Sulzen. This recording is from the year 2004. There have been a number of such recordings of Roram's songs made by present-day singers. This one is by far my favorite, and this is an extraordinary song that kind of made my hair stand on end. So thank you, Laura and Donald, for this recording, which I think was a world premiere.
Now we're going to hear four songs performed by one of Rorum's very favorite singers, the soprano Phyllis Curtin. It just so happens that Phyllis Curtin was born on the 3rd of December, 1921. So next week, we will have a posthumous observance of her 101st birthday. Yet another reason to spend a little bit more time with this extraordinary soprano and to explore the profound connection that these two artists shared. First off is another very early setting of Roram's, a setting by the poet Eleanor Wiley of a poem called Little Elegy. This recording is from 1969. had exquisite taste in his choice of texts that he set. And we're going to hear three extraordinary poets in a row. First, Frank O'Hara. This is his song for Poulenc, and once again, the recording with Curtin and Roram is from the year 1969.
From that same recording session, we have a setting by the poet Paul Goodman of one of Roram's most quintessential settings, the poem What Sparks and Wiry Cries. What's interesting about this is that the song can be interpreted on a couple different levels. First of all, of course, it's about a relationship going through a very troubled patch, shall we say. But in Roram's setting, it also becomes a kind of description of how song can transform and elevate us. Very few composers have dared to set the thorny poetry of Sylvia Plath, and yet Ned Roram did exactly that in his cycle, Ariel. 
scored for piano, soprano, and obbligato clarinet. This is the fifth and final song from the cycle, entitled Lady Lazarus, and this recording features the clarinetist Joseph Rabai and the pianist Ryan Edwards, alongside Phyllis Curtin in one of her most powerful performances of Aurorum Song, the recordings from 1973. Peel off the napkin, oh, my enemy, so I terrify. Now as long as the ice hits the full set of teeth, the sour breath Every 
Another singer with whom Roram frequently collaborated was that exceptional bass baritone Donald Graham, whom I featured on his own special episode just a few months back. In that episode, I featured a number of settings of Ned Roram, and I'm going to play two that were not included in those episodes. Both are settings by the poet Walt Whitman a poet with whom Roram felt a very strong connection. And here we should observe that Roram lived his life very openly and unapologetically as a sexually active and, at times, quite promiscuous gay man. I think that that was one connection that he probably felt very strongly with Whitman, and he often chose texts that highlighted the shared experience of these two unapologetic gay men. First of all, from a live recording at Town Hall in the winter of 1976, here are Donald Graham and his pianist Donald Hazard performing the Whitman setting as Adam early in the morning.
One of Rorum's towering masterpieces is his setting of five war poems of Whitman entitled War Scenes. This was written for the French baritone Gérard Souset and his pianist Dalton Baldwin and premiered by them. It was subsequently recorded by Donald Graham and Eugene Estoman in 1969, and it is the final song from that cycle that we are going to hear right now, the real war will never get in the books. And so goodbye to the war. I know not how it may have been to others. To me, the main interest was in the rank and file of the armies. Both sides, and even the dead on the field. The points illustrating the latent character of the American young were of more significance than the political interests involved. <laughs> years will never know the seething hell of countless minor scenes. The real war will never get in the books, perhaps must not and should One of Roram's lesser-known works for voice and piano is a setting of a group of ten poems by Howard Moss called King Midas. It's identified as a cantata. Through these poems, the story of King Midas is retold. Both of the singers, mezzo-soprano and tenor, assume various parts in the drama, and we're going to hear two brief excerpts from this in a 1975 recording in which mezzo-soprano Sandra Walker and the tenor John Stewart are accompanied by pianist Anne Shine. First is the seventh song of the cantata called The Princess's Song. It might also be remembered by some of my listeners because the words are See How They Love Me. 
a poem which was first set by Ned Roram in 1958 and published separately under the title See How They Love Me. It was also set by his friend, the composer William Flanagan. The song was eventually incorporated into the cantata King Midas, which was first performed in 1961. I was not previously acquainted with the work of the mezzo-soprano Sandra Walker, but I find her to be a wonderful interpreter with pristine diction and a crystal clear timbre. also going to hear the final song of the King Midas Cantata, The King to the Princess at the Riverbank. And one must remember that everything that King Midas touches turns to gold, and eventually his beloved daughter encounters the same fate. This is the first example today that we will hear featuring the exceptional lyric tenor John Stewart, who had a 25-year career and has previously been heard on the podcast singing Romeo opposite the French soprano Christiane Edapierre. I find him an enormously appealing singer. I hope you do too. My daughter, the Give 
setting of Paul Goodman's poem The Lordly Hudson represents the apex of his compositional mastery. A lot of people seem to hold that opinion, and it is really a truly magnificent song. Anyone who has driven along that route and seen The Lordly Hudson will certainly find this song resonating for them. In 1964, Ned Roram recorded an album of songs featuring some of his favorite singers, including Curtin and Graham, tenor Charles Bressler, soprano Gianna D'Angelo, and the mezzo-soprano Regina Sarfati, who here performs the Lordly Hudson. Roram himself accompanies. Driver, what stream is it? No peace in your 
We heard a setting earlier of Frank O'Hara. Here's another one. This was a setting of four different poems of O'Hara's. It's called Four Dialogues, and it depicts, much in the same way as Gabriel Fauré's cycle, Poem d'un jour, the genesis, the blooming, and the death of a relationship. In Roram and O'Hara's case, there are two different voices heard. Once again, we will hear the tenor John Stewart, and he is joined by a soprano whose name was only vaguely familiar to me, but whom I found to be exactly the kind of singer that I love, the American soprano Anita Darian, a wonderful, versatile singer of Armenian descent who lived from 1927 to 2015 and performed a wide variety of musicals classical music, and operatic repertoire. This song, the last of the four dialogues, is called In New York and Spain. The passionate love affair has run its course, and the two lovers are separated by great distance and are looking back upon that brief but passionate affair. Once again, Roram himself is the pianist in this 1969 recording. Thank you. 
We have seen how Ned Roram, though he composed in a relatively conservative idiom, was always stretching the boundaries of what constituted art song, so that there were settings with obligato instruments, there were songs and cycles, like Poems of Love and the Rain, that used fascinating and unique structural innovations, and, as in the King Midas cantata, individual songs that constituted a dramatic arc. We also heard this in the four dialogues. And increasingly, Ned Roram pursued an interest in multiple voices performing single poems. In 1969, there was a concert at which Phyllis Curtin, Beverly Wolfe, and Donald Graham all performed solo songs by Ned Roram, and his thought was to present all three of these artists in a cycle in which their voices would be joined at the end of the program. He chose poems by John Ashbery, and he set three of them under the collective title Some Trees. We're going to hear the second of those songs, The Grapevine, and you hear already how he begins that interweaving of voices that we heard at the top of the program in the first of the Evidence of Things Not Seen cycle. Ned Roram had a final compositional flowering toward the end of his life when he wrote the opera Our Town, and even more significantly, in my opinion, this extraordinary song cycle called Evidence of Things Not Seen, which is broken into three different portions. The first is called Beginnings, the second Middles, 
and the third ends. Roram himself felt this to be his most significant composition, and it is truly an extraordinary undertaking. He had apparently dreamed for decades of composing a chamber piece for four solo voices to be called Art of the Song, and eventually, under the sponsorship of New York Festival of Song and the Library of Congress, this project was commissioned, and he chose 36 texts by 24 different authors, including many whom he had frequently set, Rethke, Goodman, and Whitman. Others represented include Wordsworth, Browning, Elizabeth Barrett, Langston Hughes, Oscar Wilde, A.E. Hausman, Robert Frost. It is, as I say, a kaleidoscopic collection, and the voices are heard sometimes in quartet, sometimes in duet, and often in solo numbers as well. I would so love to play the entire cycle for you, and I really highly recommend it. In mid-life, Ned Roram settled down to domestic life with his partner, the organist and choir director James Holmes, with whom he lived for more than 30 years. In 1999, James Holmes died at the age of 59 of AIDS, and one feels that part of Roram's process of mourning was to write this song cycle, which includes, in the third section of the cycle, texts which specifically reference AIDS. I'm going to play the last two songs from the cycle. First, Even Now, a setting from Paul Monette's posthumous memoir, Love Alone. This is performed by the tenor Rufus Müller, accompanied by Stephen Blyer, which leads directly into the final song, Evidence of Things Not Seen, a setting by the Quaker writer and thinker William Penn. Roram was raised in the Quaker tradition, though he was non-religious. Nevertheless, the Quaker tradition very much informed his entire life. This text is set for all four of the soloists, Monique MacDonald, Dolores Ziegler, Rufus Müller, and my friend, colleague, and fellow native Wisconsinite, Kurt Ullmann. Faith lights us, even through the grave, being the evidence of things not seen. And this is the comfort of the good, that the grave cannot hold them, and that they live as soon as they die. For death is no more than the turning of us over from time to eternity. Death, then, being the way and condition of life, we cannot love to live if we cannot bear to die. Oh, help! Be 
I do want to provide a little addendum to this episode, for on the very same day that Ned Roram died, my friend, the pianist and vocal coach, David Treestrom, also died. I knew David in New York. I also knew him after he left his life in New York behind to end his days in Paris, where I saw him a couple times when I was working in that magnificent city. I understand his final years were plagued with physical difficulties, but not unlike Ned Roram, he lived a life thoroughly, widely, deeply, cantankerously, and fully. I'm so happy to present as the final selection today his performance with the beloved soprano Roberta Alexander of the song by Leonard Bernstein, Betty Comden, and Adolph Green from On the Town Some Other Time. I extend particular greetings and condolences to Roberta and the many others that truly 
loved David Treestrom, and also to those who were profoundly connected to Ned Roram as well. Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>